You're listening to the Fanfic Maverick Podcast, the show where I talk to fanfiction writers about their work and the marvelous world of fanfiction. This episode does mention violence and sexual assault. If you are sensitive to these topics, please practice self-care and proceed with caution. Listener discretion is advised. Hey, fellow fanfiction aficionados, just a quick mention before we proceed with today's show. I recently teamed up with Sarah at the Talkin' Fanfic podcast, and we collaborated on a two-part fanfiction history series together. Part one was released on August 3rd on the Talkin' Fanfic podcast, and in that episode, we cover the fanfiction history timeline leading up to the creation of the Organization for Transformative Works and the AO3 Archive. Part two of our fanfiction history series is a panel discussion with special guests Francesca and Al Ronix, which will drop right here on the Fanfic Maverick podcast on Tuesday, August 10th. So head on over to the Talkin' Fanfic podcast and listen to part one. If you're not already familiar with the Talkin' Fanfic podcast, I do encourage you to check out all of the show's posted episodes because Sarah is the absolute best. And her podcast is hands down amazing. You will love it, just like I do. You can find Talkin' Fanfic on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, Spotify, or the links that I've posted at fanficmaverickpodcast.com under the blog and recommended pods section. And now on to today's show. The following paragraphs are from Chapter 3 of a fanfiction story titled Blue-Eyed Matador by today's guest fanfiction author, Flamingo Queen. No one has heard. No one has seen. It struck hard and fast, silent and final. The man who drives the transport vehicle has no fingers to hold the wheel, no hands with palms to honk the horn or knuckles to strike the face. There is screaming, a woman, close but not too close, yelling, a man, close, but not too close. The man who used to drive the transport vehicle has no hands at all, and has no cheeks or lips, or tongue to whistle the tunes that come out of the dashboard and speakers. He has no ears to put the hard little white things into. He has no feet to step on the pedals with the accelerator, the brakes, the clutch. He has no feet to step on the asset with or to kick it. There is the sound of leather connecting with skin and of a body being thrown against a wall. Close and too close now. Too familiar. It knows those sounds. This is unacceptable. It will not go back. It will not let another be taken back in its place. There is no going back. It will not will not, will not go. It will not go back. It sets the reward on the concrete behind the metal box. Easy to pick up after, but not so easy to spot and steal. It did well. It earned the reward. No one will take the reward away. The ones who will, the ones who would, are dead. Some of them. Not enough of them. Someday, all of them. There is the window with the light coming through the curtains, thin little strips from the edges. It is the only light on this side of the motel, the only room that is occupied. On the other side of the motel, there is a room that was occupied by a transport vehicle driver, and that is now occupied by a pile of meat. 
There are three other occupied rooms on the other side of the motel, still occupied by living people. And there is this room on this side of the motel, occupied by a man who sounds like anger and a woman who sounds like fear, and soon to be occupied by a woman who does not need to be afraid, and a pile of meat. It is a good sort of night for fashioning piles of meat out of people. To the north, south, east, and west, four corners of the world, Greetings from the wild, arid desert of the American Southwest. I'm your host, Chaos Blue, and this is the Fanfic Maverick Podcast. Today's guest fanfiction writer is Flamingo Queen. She has been a member of AO3 since 2018, and she has 18 works currently posted there, all under the MCU universe. She learned to knit, but knits backwards because she learned by mirroring a friend. She loves paddleboarding and hiking. Flamingo Queen has several degrees in English Lit and Creative Writing, and she works as an editor in real life. She also has a published story out there about jilted goats in love, which makes me so happy because I happen to think that goats are very special and I adore them. So Flamingo Queen actually grew up on a ranch and says that she has plenty of fun animal-related factoids and antidotes for all occasions. Flamingo Queen, thank you so much for taking the time to be here today. Welcome to the show. How are you? I'm doing great, and thank you so much for having me. You're so welcome. We're going to have a great time today. I can't wait to dive in and talk about your amazing work. But of course, I always like to start at the point where we first discover fan fiction, because I think that that's such a formative, special time for everyone. When did you first discover fan fiction And what did that feel like for you? So I discovered it in stages. So first off, I discovered it later than a lot of people seem to. I discovered it in college by mistake, totally accidentally. I wasn't even looking for it. My roommate at the time was watching Yu-Gi-Oh!, which is that very, very deeply unrealistic high-stakes card game that's turned into an anime. I loved it but I loved it ironically. And so, yeah, she was actually just a fan, and I was an ironic fan to start off with. However, the joke was on me because when I was at the summer and I didn't have Yu-Gi-Oh!, I went looking for information about the spirit of the Millennium Ring because it was not just ironic, and I hadn't realized it at the time. So the Millennium Ring, it's this Egyptian artifact. It houses a spirit that can possess this one character and do terrible things. But the character himself is a cinnamon roll. So we've got that dichotomy between the soft, gentle, soft-spoken character and this devious, evil, mischievous spirit. And so I went looking for more information about the spirit, and it turns out there was no information in canon about the spirit. So I ended up finding a bunch of fan fiction instead of actual canon stuff. And so that was my introduction to fanfiction.net, starring Yami Bakura, as they called him. And it was, I kid you not, a dream come true. 
I wasn't the only one out there thinking way too much about this cartoon. And so Ryo Bakura became a comfort character of mine. And there were hundreds and thousands of stories about him. People sent him to Hogwarts. People had Hogwarts people come into his room. And, you know, Voldemort was involved and crossovers and everything involving this character who was a very minor character in the actual Yu-Gi-Oh! series. So it was almost like coming home, you know, after a long trip and you were gone for a while, you didn't realize how much you had missed home. See, I'd been doing something similar to fanfiction with my brother growing up. And here are people who are doing just that and they were writing it down and sharing it with the world. And it wasn't just Yu-Gi-Oh! Lord of the Rings, they had it. Highlander, they had it. Harry Potter, you bet. Cold Fire Trilogy. Nobody knew about the Cold Fire Trilogy, surely. And yet there were fan fiction stories about the Cold Fire Trilogy. I was blown away by all of the fan fiction that was out there. I probably would have failed that entire semester if I had not put a limit on how much fan fiction I was allowed to read. That sounds so intensely satisfying. To suddenly be inundated with all this information about a minor side character that you had been wondering about for so long. And then all of a sudden, all these people come in. And fan fiction is so amazing because every author seems to have a different opinion or a different twist or a different this or that. And so being presented with all of these different possibilities must have been so exciting. It was incredibly exciting. And I was an English major at the time, so I was, of course, working on my own stories and similar, and there was this temptation to perhaps put my own stories and similar to one side and start writing some stories about somebody else's universe. But I just read for years. I was very careful not to mix my fan fiction reading and my quote-unquote real work. So I was a total lurker. I wanted to be invisible. I wanted to be anonymous. I, I didn't know what to say to these authors other than, this is amazing. I love your work. Please write more. And that just didn't seem right. And so I was, I was purely a lurker. I feel bad about how lurking I was as a lurker. Because now, of course, as, as a writer, I live for feedback. And I realized that I could have been giving so much feedback to these people because I was reading everything they wrote. So it's okay. I think a lot of us actually start out as lurkers. I was a lurker myself for a really long time. I've been reading fan fiction for 24 years, and only in the last few years have I really attempted to be a vocal part of the community. And that's actually what this show is all about is me trying to give back to the fan fiction community that gave me so much for all those years because that sounds exactly like me. I did not really engage with people. In fandom, I enjoyed the works that they produced so much, and they meant so much to me, and they changed me. But this is the first time that I'm kind of vocal about all of that stuff, so I completely understand that. I'm curious about what you said about doing something similar with your sibling growing up. It doesn't sound like you were necessarily writing these stories down, but were you referring to like make-believe type games that you would play? Yeah, actually. My origin story basically is that I've always been a writer as long as I can remember, and more importantly, a, a teller of stories. So I would write little booklets that were stapled together and illustrated. I'd read them to my brother. I would tell him stories when we were supposed to be sleeping. And the way those went is that we were both into, well, 
first it was stuff like Ninja Turtles, then it was stuff like X-Men, then it was, you know, it just kept going. But when we were in our X-Men stage, he would ask about a character from our cast of action figures. It could be Gambit, it could be Mr. Sinister, it could be Sauron, it didn't matter. Any character, he'd ask, what are they doing? And I would make up wholesale a story for him about what they were doing right now. And it took off. Eventually, all of those stories became one universe where all of our action figures were little ones, and they were compared to our big ones that were the actual characters. And so in this universe, there was a normal gambit, and there was a little gambit who was a literal action figure come to life in action figure size, who rode a house cat and answered to Mr. Sinister, who was obsessed with typing on a computer. We had a little Trevor Fitzroy. He was addicted to Tylenol. He had a friend, Little Bishop. Little Bishop was really worried about his liver because Tylenol. It was complex, it was bizarro, and it was a kind of oral fan fiction because we were taking these stories that were, you know, in the comics, that were on TV, and we were making our own little world. It was very AU, but it was our own little world based on that. And so we were making a kind of fan fiction, and we would tell each other these stories. We just never wrote any of it down. That sounds like the most epic crossover I have ever heard in my entire life. That's oh, amazing. I think there was a G.I. Joe involved. Now, were you self-inserting yourselves as characters in this world with these other pre-existing characters, or was it just about them? It was just about the characters. It was all the characters. We would pretend to be one of the big ones. So he would pretend to be Big Gambit, and I would pretend to be Big Trevor Fitzroy or whatever. Of course, I wasn't downing Tylenol for my chronic headaches. I was instead using Smarties because, you know... <laughs> One needs to take care of oneself. Of course. And even as a child, I apparently knew that Tylenol caused liver damage. So who oh, knows? That's so wonderful. And I just love the level of detail that you two would put into that. That just sounds so amazing. What an amazing childhood. How fun. So I suppose that it must have been very surprising then when you stumbled onto fanfiction.net and discovered, oh, everybody here is writing down their, uh, you know, their stories. And it's kind of a thing. Exactly. Everybody was writing it down. It was definitely a thing. And it was all good stuff. I mean, I was not judgmental. I loved self-insert fix. I loved o OCs. I loved total canon compliance. I loved AUs. It did not matter. I voraciously read everything there was to be read. And just very clearly saw what we were doing as children reflected in these works. Oh, that's wonderful. And it sounds like you really had the inclination to be a writer from a very young age, mm -hmm. as you're describing, like making these little booklets, right, with the, the drawings and the story and everything. Do you remember what inspired you to want to become a writer in the first place? Well, I read a lot to start with. And I was reading stuff that was technically above my age level, but primarily in the fantasy genre. So you're Dragonlance, but reading it in fourth grade when other people are reading Goosebumps. 
So doing that kind of thing. And I started working on my own high fantasy project. I won't call it a novel or a series, but it's definitely a project. And I started that in my head only. And then in high school, I wrote it down. So I have some maps, I have glossaries, I have spreadsheets of the characters with all their characteristics and interactions. There are thousands of characters on this spreadsheet, several hundred pages worth of notes. It's a beast, as you might expect. And I worked on that project all through high school, all through college, into grad school. I still pick at it and tinker with it today. But that was what I wanted to do. I wanted to be a renowned writer who could just support herself purely by writing. That, of course, is totally unrealistic and only happens very rarely with any success at all. So that was maybe a dream that didn't come true. But I found that I like fan fiction even more than this idea of being a published writer. Ah, and I like how you put that, that you liked fan fiction even more. I'm curious about that because that does segue into the next question here, which is, why? Why is fan fiction important? What do you love the most about it? I'm so curious to hear what your thoughts are on that. Well, fan fiction has been incredibly important to me personally, and I'm just going to start there. Not only was it important to me when I first discovered but it was important to me when I rediscovered it. Because after a while, grad school, college, it all got to be very hairy, and I didn't have a whole lot of time for extracurriculars. So I first got started again in fan fiction land after I did a master's degree, and I finally had some time. And then again, everything got away from me. And the third time around, I rediscovered it as a distraction because my mother was currently in the process of a very long losing battle with cancer, and I desperately needed a distraction from it. So I jumped into fan fiction again, and this time, you know, chose to write it all out. And so fan fiction has been there for me and comforted me in times of distress. It's provided a community from when I was lonely. It's distracted me from life when it's gone wrong. It's allowed me to play in a sandbox that other people created. It's entertained me, it's excited me, it's challenged me, and it's lifted so many bad moods that I can't even count them. And that's just what fan fiction has been for me personally. It's more than that. It's, it's important on a much wider level as well. Now, coming from a, a perspective as a reader, I know what it's like to read the fan fiction and consume the fan fiction. And I can say that all of those same things apply to me as a reader, that in my darkest times or the times where I feel like I needed the most connection and comfort, I was able to find that in fan fiction. I've been able so many times to find stories out there to read that help me process what's happening in my personal real life. I'm wondering, in your perspective as a writer, I imagine that going through that experience with your mother was very emotionally difficult. And I'm wondering if writing, did that help you process some of that experience and some of those feelings? Absolutely. I was writing at first a series called A Hazy Shade of Winter, which sort of goes back and tackles the 70-year gap that we don't know anything about from between when Bucky falls off of the train 
and when we see him in helicarrier land, etc. And I poured so much negative energy and similar into those stories. And there's one fic in the series that I've not written that someday I will that I've got a lot of notes for. And that is the story in which the general finally dies. And the soldier is just heartbroken and cannot deal with this, does not process it well, goes completely off the rails from his grief. And writing the words, getting them out. I mean, I have typed page after page after page of stuff on that one story that's in character, sure, and it's according to the right plot, and it has all of the right background, but it's just my emotion on the page, because it was devastating to watch my mother slowly just succumb to this horrifying disease that just took her away from us. So, you know, I've got the general, and he's similarly withering away in front of the soldier's eyes. He's got the ability to save the general, but the general has ordered him not to. And he has to deal with that the same way I had to deal with my mother pleading for us to let her die. And we couldn't do anything other than let time and cancer take its course. I mean, we couldn't kill her, even though she would have welcomed it. So I I will never probably publish that story because everybody hates the general. And I wouldn't be able to handle it very well if people were sort of treating the general as my mother, though he's definitely a stand-in for her for that one story. Yeah, absolutely. And thank you so much for sharing that with us. I really appreciate that. I think that that's one of the things that makes fan fiction so special. I mean, there's lots of reasons why it's special, but while people are under no obligation to share things in their writing or work through real-life issues in their writing, There are many authors that do choose to do that. And I think that sometimes you can tell when that's happening in the writing. And it touches us, the readers, on so many different levels because you never know who out there needs to read that story, right? Or read that particular way of processing that particular instance. Or I don't know. I just know that in my life, there have been so many times when I have been going through something in real life and I find the right story where you can tell that the the writer has been through something similar and it has actually helped me process my real life junk in a way that that I found very helpful so um I just you know want to say thank you to all the all the writers out there that uh have all of these different perspectives and share their stories with us because you never know who you're going to touch and who you're going to help oh exactly exactly and i beyond just channeling all of my emotions into these stories and these world building exercises Fandom and fan fiction was there for me more than I can even describe. My greatest fandom friend, Glittercake, she was literally talking with me on Discord when my mother died. Like, she was right there with me, despite the fact that she was half a world away. She was there for me. And I'm incredibly grateful And I would never have met her if I hadn't published anything on AO3 because she was my very first commenter. The very first story I wrote, the very next day, she had commented on it. And that was the beginning of 
everything for me. Everything that's formed my current support network is fandom related and based entirely on that relationship. I mean, shout out to you, Glitter Cake, if you're listening, but thank you. I am endlessly humbled by how wonderful fandom communities and fan fiction communities can be. They can be extremely welcoming places and you can meet your best friends there. You know, honest to God, right? And um, I think we were talking a little bit before the show about how important that connection is and how that connection saves us in the end. So that's wonderful. I love that. Now, when it comes to MCU fandom in particular, I'm curious to know how you were first introduced to the MCU fandom world and and what do you love the most about that? So I have a confession to make. I come to movies and fandoms and all sorts of things roughly four years late, inevitably. I don't get involved until it's already very well established, and I don't mean to get into it in a fandom way. For Roroni Kenshin, for instance, I was watching it well after they had all of their stuff wrapped up, even in the comics, the, the manga. And so I came to that way late. I started writing for that way late. And they were incredibly inviting and friendly and kind. And the same thing happened with the MCU. I as I said, was needing a break from dealing with my mother's death. And I just happened to decide I wanted to watch a movie. And the movie I wanted to watch was The Winter Soldier. Ah. That made it click. It was obsession at first sight. That's how I can explain it. It was absolutely something that I latched on to, or it latched on to me either way, and it would not let go of my brain. So I proceeded to follow the normal course of action as one would, and then I read the TV Tropes page for the movie, and all the other TV Tropes pages for the movie, because they've got Your Mileage May Vary and all sorts of other little tabs, and you can go down a rabbit hole, TV Tropes, dangerous website. But by the tail end of 2018, I had read countless stories And I was ready to plot out and actually write and actually post some stories of my own. And that, I mean, the last time I posted anything was for Roroni Kenshin and Bleach. And that was in, oh gosh, I want to say 2006, maybe? Ooh, so it had been quite some time. It had been a long time since I really did anything fandom related. And I mean, it's been a runaway train since then. Not a train wreck. I've enjoyed every minute of it, but I still can't look away as you would with a train wreck. But the stories I plotted showed up as Hazy Shade of Winter, and it has blossomed from that. I've got anything from Let's Send Steve and Bucky to the Jurassic period, to Hey, Bucky Turns into a Seal, to Hey, Let's Throw Venom in the Mix. And then we've got this, the Blue-Eyed Matador, where we've got a completely off-the-rails Bucky who's more than a little feral. And so, I mean, the MCU fandom, it grabbed me, and it did not let go, and it still has not let go. And I guess when it comes to what I love about it, what don't I love about it? There's the friends I've made, as I mentioned before. 
you know, Glitter Cake is not just my first commenter, but a close friend and confidant, and she's my emergency beta. So if I have a passage or a snippet and I'm like, ah, I don't know about this one, I'll send it to her and she'll respond to it and tell me what needs to be fixed. And she's very honest about it and always gives me those eyes emoticon, like I'm looking, looking, looking for more. But I've made many more friends than just Glitter Cake and from all over the world. And there's a thing that was very popular back in, I guess, 2012 and, and recently around then, where everybody wanted a found family. Everybody wanted what the Avengers movie promised us, which was everybody lives in the tower together, Clint lives in the air vents, Thor eats Pop-Tarts, everybody's together, and I am a major sucker for found family. Just cannot get enough found family. So found family is still around. You still get pictures of that. You still get stories of that. The MCU fandom is about found family, whether the canon gives it to us or not. And we're all a kind of found family. And it shows, I think. There's some shipping wars and similar, but there will always be shipping wars and similar. I don't think there is a fandom that's free from that unless it's teeny tiny. So there's that. There's the meta that's floating around everywhere. There's just a huge variety of stories to pick from and characters to be focused on. And it doesn't even matter if you've seen the movie, which is important to me because, again, I come to everything about four years late. So I would love to enjoy the fan fiction without necessarily having seen the movie. And I can do that. You can pick it up if you're vaguely familiar with the character through comics, even if you're not. You can sort of just read it and enjoy it. And it's good stuff. The fans, I think, are really amazing people. I would agree with that. I think the MCU fans are amazing people. You know, because I'm, I'm a voracious reader, I read in a lot of different fandoms um, across all boards and everything. So I'm familiar with lots of different groups and, and they're all just so wonderful. But I'm so glad that you mentioned the fan family tropes that are just inherent in the MCU universe, because I would say that that's probably my favorite thing about the majority of MCU fan fiction. <laughs> is when you do get to see the team relaxing in the tower, having a good time, getting to know each other, you know, on personal levels. And I don't know, there's just something cozy about it that makes me long for something like that in real life, you know, especially I think because they are such unique, inherently different characters that all live in the same space in these fics. There's a lot of really interesting things that can happen when uh, when you have something like that going on there. So Well, absolutely. And it's one of the important things about fan fiction that you can get that out of it. Because fan fiction, I'm sorry to jump back, we've kind of covered this, but with fan fiction, you can do so much that the canon doesn't have in it. You don't have to follow canon. You don't have to say, okay, we had the Avengers. It looked like they were becoming a family, and now they've all scattered, and they're still irritable with each other when they meet up next. You can say, no, no canon. I disagree with that. They all live in the tower. They have ice cream sundaes and pizza parties and movie nights, and you can't say otherwise. Yes, and someone makes pancakes in the morning mm -hmm. when they all wake up for breakfast, which I love. You know, one of the things that I love, too, about fan fiction is the ability for us to dive into the emotional states of being for these characters, because 
if I had one complaint, <laughs> well, I have many, but if I, if, I, if I had to talk about my biggest pet peeve complaint about the media that we are presented with from Hollywood, it would be that it's so surface level, Agreed. right? And you don't really get to dive into the emotional states of these characters. And you also don't really get to see most of these characters being human or vulnerable in yep. any way. Yep. And to me, that's interesting. Well, fan fiction gives us ideas and a, a voice for those ideas that canon just doesn't have room for. I mean, canon, it has to get through a horde of gatekeepers, not just the writers in the room or the studios or, or whatever, but just it has to appeal to the widest possible audience and it has to be all action, action, action. There's looming deadlines. It has to fit rules of storytelling that's like, oh, succinct is better. And it has to gloss over everything where fan fiction, any plot hole you come up with, we can fill it. Any fridge logic, we can explain it. Paths not taken, oh, we can take them all. And flat characters, no flat characters here. We can flesh out the flattest character on that stage. And any issues they don't address, all those deep character motivations and the backstories and all of that, we can address them. We can fill in those gaps and fix what canon gives us that's just wrong. Because canon gives you mainstream media, and mainstream media gives us mainstream ideas. And any of us that don't fit into that category, well, we have ideas too, and usually those ideas would fix whatever's wrong with the mainstream ideas. And our ideas are so valid, whether they're original or borrowed. And I just, I don't think there's a story out there that's not worth telling. And so you can just tell whatever story you want, even if canon's like, eh, this character, a real throwaway character, has a couple of lines, we're going to move on. You can say no. No, canon, you put that character on the screen. You put that character on the page. We're going to decide that that's a main character. Thank you. Yes. Oh, I love that you used the word valid. They are valid. These stories are valid and they deserve to be told. And they are what breathe life into these characters in the first place. I've said this many times on the show that a character that is presented to me through media is not real to me until I read fan fiction about it, right? I have found exactly that to be the case. Because, you know, I'll see it on the screen and I'll think, okay, whatever, moving on. I mean, there are some characters that stand out and you're immediately drawn to them for various reasons. Many of them are probably personal. But on the whole, you don't really think about them. They're just sort of there. They're on the page, on the screen. You could take them, you could leave them. Right. But then you read a story about them. And the author of that story has gone into such detail. And they've picked apart the nuances back and forth. Everything is nuanced. Everything is deep. You're diving into that character's whole life and psyche. And you just get so much more of that character. And then they become your favorite character. You never thought about them twice, but now, oh, now you have some headcanon. Now you can go to town and talk about that character forever. Yes, yes, that's absolutely been my experience. I'm so glad that you understand that because, because yeah, like, I don't know. It's just not real to me until writers flesh these guys out for me and give them these gorgeous backstories and, you know, we dive into their psyches and it's just wonderful. 
that's one of the reasons why I love Bucky's character so much. I was first introduced to Bucky, of course, on Captain America. Yes. And then he made a reappearance in The Winter Soldier. And I admit that I did not really know what The Winter Soldier was about. I just knew it was an MCU movie. So I went and saw it and was quite surprised when I found out that, oh, it's Bucky. And I think that one of the things that attracted me so much to that character is just the tragedy of that story, you know, that he sacrificed everything. And he was really playing second fiddle to Captain America and the Howling Commandos and everything. And then he falls from that train. We never see him again, you know, and to discover all these years later through the Winter Soldier movie that he didn't just fall from that train, like all this crazy stuff happened to him afterwards. Absolutely tragic. So like I have a soft spot in my heart for the tragic characters. I'm wondering for you, what was it that really draws you to the Bucky character? What's of particular interest to you there? Okay, so he falls into a character trope that has been a weakness of mine for as long as I can remember. And that is the character with a good heart who's corrupted against their will and forced to do harm. Or the character with a good heart who becomes corrupted by the actions they're forced by circumstances to take. Who has to find a way to make amends or reject that corruption. That is what drew me to Himura Kenshin and Ryu Bakura. It's what drew me to... Kurosaki Ichigo and Bleach. It's what keeps me hooked on the Cold Fire trilogy. Even after I've read the books so many times, they've needed to be replaced because they have fallen apart on me twice. And it is what keeps me coming back around to Bucky. Bucky is a victim of circumstance. He's someone who is broken down, but he retained that kernel of self. He's someone who was forced to do horrible things and who feels responsible for those things. Whether he's responsible for his actions or not, he did those things. And he is the one who has to live with that. He says it himself. And, you know, as for what it says about me, that that character trope is one of my favorites, like, I, I don't know. But I definitely go for the forced hands, the coercion, the corruption of good, and then the redemption and reclaiming of that good. I just, I really like that prospect of losing yourself and having to find it again, losing control and agency having to fight to regain it, this slippery moral slope, and the struggle to go just far enough down to reach the goal, but not so far down that you lose your footing and plummet. Bucky doesn't have all of the trope, no, but he's got enough of them to keep me writing, probably forever. I don't see myself ever not writing about this character. No, I don't blame you there at all, because I feel like the character has the potential to be so multifaceted that you could literally go on and on and on, I think, about the Bucky character and never run out of things to say, you know? Agreed. 100% yeah. <laughs> agreed. Yeah, no, absolutely. And also, I really feel like what you said about his character is so relatable because how many times have we felt that way to some extent, you know? I can think back on many times in my life where I felt like I quote unquote lost myself or was faced with impossible decisions. You know, and sometimes those things haunt you. Oh, agreed. So absolutely, those things can be very relatable to us just in our daily lives here. You know, obviously, with Bucky being one of your favorite MCU characters, you have chosen to focus your current project on the Bucky character, although you do include all of the MCU characters here. But your current project is called Blue-Eyed Matador, which I have had the best time reading <laughs> <laughs> it's so great in so many ways, and I can't wait to say more about it here in a minute. But 
for those of us who have never read Blue-Eyed Matador, what is this story about? What inspired you to tell this particular story? And I'm also curious to know if there are any particular themes or arcs or messages that you were hoping to communicate with this story. So on the surface level, just pure plot wise, I would say that Blue-Eyed Matador is a revenge tour fic. It's Bucky. He's getting free in asset mode and he's hacking apart all of the people who hurt him. And the Avengers are thinking he's this big bad guy and they're trying to stop him. Then eventually they're trying to save him. So we've got this mute, semi-feral, serial mass murderer on our hands in this edition of Bucky. And we have an Avengers team that's just been derailed into a new timeline by the endgame time heist folks paying a visit. So this is alternate reality 2012, what happened if? So everyone is just reeling from their assorted issues. We've got Clint dealing with the Loki thing. We've got Natasha dealing with this new family that she's found herself in. We have Tony, who just had a trip to outer space, getting that nuke up in the air, followed by a heart attack that's triggered from... I forget, I haven't actually watched Endgame, so I couldn't tell you the details of the time heist, but I recall he has a heart attack. And we've got just all of these characters that have this brand new straight up after the Chitari attack, issues, drama, you, you name it. And eventually, all of those different strings show up as a found family. Ta-da! That's it in a nutshell. The very basic overview. If you want to go a little deeper, we've got a Bucky character struggling to rebuild an identity. Not necessarily his original one. But he's struggling to rebuild some identity for himself after it's been stripped away. So he's finding himself. He's learning how to trust others after everyone in the world he knows has only ever hurt him. And we've got the Avengers dealing with their own trauma. And eventually, I promise it comes to be, Clint and the Bucky character are going to be a uh, an item. So this is definitely a Winterhawk story just the slowest of slow burns, like so slow. And I'm so glad that it's going to be Winterhawk <laughs> because, you know, I didn't know really about that pairing until just a few years ago and fell in love with it. So when I saw that this was Winterhawk, I got so excited because there's nothing better than Def Clint slash Bucky Barnes. Like it Agreed. just, oh, it's so good. So please Well, continue. and now we have mute Bucky Barnes with Def Clint. So we've got extra emphasis on sign language coming up. In the background of all of this, I feel I must go into details about the infamous Hydra Trash Party. Because I've had readers who maybe weren't expecting this, and they kind of got blindsided by the nature of Hydra Trash Party. I remember my first time reading a Hydra Trash Party fic, and I did not know what that stood for. I just thought, oh, well, this is going to be a bad time for Bucky. It was more than a bad time for Bucky. It was just an atrociously bad time for Bucky. So just, you know, there's a Hydra trash party going on. Now, I'm not an expert, I wouldn't say, but this is basically a non-con festival where Bucky, sometimes Steve, sometimes other people, but usually it's Bucky, is treated as a kind of party favor by Hydra. Sometimes he ends up being more of a piñata than anything else, and they just sort of take turns mutilating him, which is, you know, ghastly. 
you know, quite often he turns into a sort of sex slave and he's deeply broken by it. There's gang rapes, there's less sexual torture, just sort of tossed in for flavor. It happens during missions, after missions, before missions. It's just a big old festival of non-con and a lot of it is physical, but there's also this psychological element to it. And it's just like the sheer inescapability and inevitability of all of this abuse just wears him down. And sometimes it gets to the point where in the story he's eagerly cooperating in order to avoid even worse treatment. Or sometimes he'll find out to his self-disgust that he's enjoying it or that normal sexual contact just does nothing for him anymore. And so in my story, this is past tense stuff. This has all happened in the past. The only time it comes up is in remembrances or references to it, or if it's a Hydra individual, some fantasies about what they'd like to do, but they do not get to do it again because it's all past tense. But in some stories, in most of the stories that feature Hydra Trash Party, that's right up there on the page, and it's explored with varying levels of glee and detail, but often with that sense of outrage and inevitability and usually without any escape or a positive spin. So some can be mild. Others are very much dead dove, dark fic, don't expect any happy endings here. And, you know, curiously, there are some newer ones these days featuring Zemo after the Falcon and the Winter Soldier series came out. So they've, they've rolled Zemo up into the Hydra Trash Party repertoire, as it were. Oh, and you know, I was wondering if that was going to happen after the series was finished and came out. I'm like you. I, I sort of stumbled upon Hydra Trash Party quite innocently one day after The Winter Soldier came out in theaters. And it, as disturbing as it was, I understood why people were going there because we really honestly don't know, right? right. What actually happened to Bucky. All we know is that he's been missing for the same amount of time that Captain America had been missing on ice. And so we don't really have much of his backstory except the, the few little parts that they show us in Winter Soldier. And it's just not much. And so you had all these fans that were trying to figure out what happened to Buggy all this time that he was away. And, uh, and that's kind of like a collective idea that a bunch of fans came up with. And it just kind of grew legs from there. You know, right? Like, you see that tag a lot in the MCU universe. I think you used to see it more back in, I don't know, 2015 to 2018, maybe, you know, some, somewhere around there. You still see it. But like you said, I do feel like that trope has evolved over time, right? Right. But you are correct that there are such dark, ghastly elements of that, that it did draw in some of the writers who write dark fic, and that's their Agreed. thing. Yeah. And I do feel like that's a really misunderstood genre and a really misunderstood group of folks. You know, so it, it did cause some drama and outrage and all of that. <laughs> and I'm not knocking dark fic writers. Like, I, I understand to an extent, like why that's um, attractive or compelling for someone who likes to write dark fic and everything. But like you said, as the Hydra Trash Party idea has evolved, we have gotten a lot of different interpretations and different reactionary stories that feature that as a, as a central theme, I suppose. So Yeah. Well, and you can see where that idea comes from in The Winter Soldier, 
the scene after the bridge where he gets beaten by Pierce and he's strapped into that chair and electrocuted and his torso is bare and heaving. He's he's half dressed in a room full of fully armored men with weapons. It's very much a rapish kind of scene. The cinematography there paints him as this damsel in distress right there. Yes, and that's that part where he gets hit in the face and then he looks up and that look in his eye when he does that. I don't know. I have seen that a thousand times and that just squishes my heart every single time that I see it. So I can absolutely see. Yeah, I can see how that scene would have inspired those types of ideas for sure. Agreed. Agreed. But Hydro Trash Party, at least I would like to think, is not a major theme in Blue-Eyed Matador, simply because it's past tense. I've reassured readers in comments many times, especially after chapter 18, that it's purely past tense. No matter what happens, nothing of that sort will happen in the present tense. But some of the other themes that I'm exploring there, one of them is that I want to explore this idea that a happy ending doesn't require perfection. It doesn't require a fix for whatever problems there are. So, you know, spoiler alert, but I'll say it from the rooftops, Bucky will never get his voice back in this fic. He's not going to suddenly be able to talk. They're not going to put him through surgeries to make him talk. There's not going to be a technological fix-it that Stark comes up with because Stark is brilliant. Because fixing Bucky isn't required for a happy ending. We don't get fixed in life most of the time, and we still have to find our own happy endings. And I want to write a story where that actually happens, where there's loss, and it's not repaired, but it's accepted. It's not overcome, it's worked through. And so none of these characters are going to be magically happy and better by the end of the story, or even the series but they'll be handling their issues better. They'll be leaning on one another for support, and they're all going to make it to the end. And so you've got this idea that, you know, no, Bucky in this story is not going to get repaired. He's not going to get fixed. They're not going to magically cure him of any of the things he's been through. He is a traumatized person with so much going on. He doesn't even consider himself to be anything beyond the asset at this point. He's dissociated and abused and just not in a good place. And while there is a happy ending, I, I promise it's a happy ending, he's not going to have the kind of happy ending where suddenly everything's better because we don't need that to have a happy ending. Right. And we don't need to be fixed to be worthy of family and worthy of love. I love that take, the direction that you're taking the story in, because that's beautiful. Well, it happens in real life. And yeah, we read fan fiction as an escape from real life quite often. But at the same time, I want to see some element of reality in there in a good way. So a happy ending that doesn't require perfection, a happy ending where you don't have to suddenly be fixed in order to have a found family around you, where you don't have to be an okay person in okay shape in order to be in a relationship with somebody. 
the idea that, yeah, you're broken. We're all a little broken and we can still be good people. I just really wanted to explore that. Yeah. Normalize that. That's mm -hmm. beautiful. I love that. Now, before I go into some of the other things that we want to talk about with this story, a silly burning question that I'm dying to know, <laughs> and I apologize, but in chapter six, right? Right. You have some POVs. You, you switch POVs quite frequently in this story, oh, yeah. which I love because it keeps it so fresh and so interesting. And you give us different voices for each character. It's just, it's just wonderful. But in chapter six, you gave us POVs from Cindy and Paul, mm -hmm. who are <laughs> employees at a hotel where Bucky is committing mayhem, you know, <laughs> and <laughs> Paul in his POV is thinking about Cindy. She's at the front desk and he's getting ready to ask her on a date. He just thinks that she's the bee's knees and he cannot wait to talk to her. And I never saw what happened. And I have to know. <laughs> Did Paul ask Cindy out on a date? And did she say yes? <laughs> so first off, that is something that never crossed my mind as I wrote those characters. Second off, based on your question, yes, the answer is that he did ask her out. And yes, the answer that she is that she did say yes. And they are going to actually appear in chapter 54, where I had room to sort of shoehorn them in. And so you will see Cindy's point of view a little bit there about something that happens at a bank that's similar to what happened at a hotel. Oh, I'm so excited for that. You have no <laughs> idea how excited I am that Cindy and Paul are going to come back. Like, even though they're kind of like OC characters, and I'm like, who is Cindy and Paul? But then it was the way that Paul was talking about Cindy, honestly, like that internal like dialogue with himself about her. Uh -huh. I was just like, oh, my God, somebody snapped this boy up. He is amazing. <laughs> and I just had to know what happened. So thank you. Thank you for uh, easing me there on that. <laughs> I've been dying to know. The other thing that I wanted to say about this story, first of all, is that your Bucky is absolutely haunting okay i have been reading bucky fan fiction ever since the winter soldier came out so we're talking years and years and years i've seen lots of different iterations of him lots of different depictions and they're all valid and wonderful but yours is haunting i am absolutely thrilled and enthralled by this it's so unique for so many different reasons i love that you've made him mute because there is no bucky dialogue here what we get are his points of view, where we really get to dive in to how fundamentally disassociated he is from his own sense of self and sense of self as an individual person. Like you said, I think you mentioned this already, that he doesn't even refer to himself as a person in your story. Like He refers to himself as an it, and he refers to the parts of his body with, you know, as a the, you know? It's the most incredible description of Bucky that I have ever seen. And I'm wondering, where did the inspiration for your Bucky come from? Okay, so he came from exactly one place. And I have to give all the credit in the world to this singer, the White Buffalo, who has the song called The Matador. It's this incredibly dark country-esque song about this 
you know, murderer, this killer. The first stanza goes, they call him the matador. He settles all the scores. He kills in plain sight with a blade and a smile. And I was listening to this song on repeat while doing my work because, you know, of course you want a soundtrack to editing things and the soundtrack should totally be about a serial killer in the Old West. And you should listen to that on repeat because who doesn't listen to one song on repeat for three hours? The answer is I do listen to them on repeat for three hours and that is where he came from. As you said, I've never seen Bucky's that are quite this level of feral or bloodthirsty, and I have a soft spot for asset mode Bucky and winter soldier mode Bucky. It's the pre-helicarrier one. He hasn't encountered Steve Rogers. He hasn't had that moment of terrifying clarity. That's the Bucky I like best, though recovering Bucky is also lovely. So with Blue-Eyed Matador, I was listening to this song, The Matador, And this image came to my mind probably an hour and a half into my three-hour listening session. I don't know how normal it is to listen to something for three hours, but I will tell you it's normal for me. But I was listening to this song, The Matador, and this image sprang to mind of a Bucky who was somehow even more than the asset or the Winter Soldier, this Bucky as serial killer. And so, you know, some of The imagery in the song is of this matador raising his blade up into the sun so that everyone gathered around can see the blood running down it and know that he's done this killing. And it's just this great song. It's dark, very dark, but great. And if you listen all the way through it, you can sort of see parallels for most of the story, to be honest. But in my mind, just as I was listening, there stood Bucky. In asset mode, clad in blood-slicked black leather, he had a knife in one hand, his mask was on, and he's just coldly slaughtering every Hydra agent or evildoer he can get his hands on. He's settling scores, he's killing in plain sight, he uses knives, not guns, he's grinning about it. He's just really happy to be killing these people in the bloodiest way possible. And from there, the story basically took off in about one hour. And I had a full outline of all of the events and some ideas for sequels and everything. But at the heart of it, just that image was of Bucky getting his revenge, motivated by this self-assigned mission to cleanse the world of the ones who hurt him so that nobody else could take him back or be taken back in his place. I wanted him to be mute so that he was like this silent killer, beyond merely the silence of excellent training or something. But I wanted his smile and his mannerisms to tell stories and for his eyes to be even more expressive than they are in that movie. And so the matador in the song, he doesn't speak. He just takes his victims by surprise, close up, grinning in plain sight of whoever happens to be looking. Probably he's, he's just hated by the crowd that watches him work, all the mothers with their crying children, etc. But in this story, the public ends up liking him as they discover who his victims have been. So I really wanted to lean into that, and I wanted to lean into that dissociation, as you say, the the dehumanized elements of him. He doesn't see himself as a he, or even a person. He uses the it pronoun. He doesn't see his body as being his own body most of the time. It's just the body. Even with his dog, his narration will say the dog's ears in the same sentence as the flesh hand. The dog's body is the dog's body. 
his body is just a body that does things. He can direct the body, but that doesn't translate for him into a solid lasting connection between himself and his body. So some of this dissociation is born of like what's been done to him. In order to survive all of that with his mind somewhat intact, he's had to distance himself from what's happening. He's had to put some space between his fragmented self and that physical body that's being tortured in assorted, creative, hydra-trash party ways. And he can't even articulate some of the things that have happened to him. I mean, readers can tell what he means, or at least I hope they can. But he doesn't get closer to they raped me than they pushed into it. He doesn't have the words to talk about these things. He doesn't have the concept of these things as having been wrong, only that he did not enjoy them. And so he's just incredibly dissociated, almost feral in a lot of ways. He doesn't have the same lens to look at reality as we would have or as other characters would have. So he's just completely in this other place. And it all came from one little song played on repeat. If you're interested in the song, it's a really spectacular song. I I highly recommend it. I don't recommend listening to it for three hours because your dreams will get crazy. But still, listen to the song. It's really good. I'm actually very happy to know that I'm not the only one to listen to random songs on repeat for three hours. I do that as well, not with serial killer songs, but, uh, you know, I have a penchant for Irish folk music and that stuff gets in my play track and it, it gets repeated, unfortunately. But I'm the only one here to listen to it, so I suppose that's fine. But yeah, I, I just loved what you did with this Bucky character. I love that he is still operating from certain assumptions, right? He still assumes that he is the asset. He still assumes that there must be a mission, even if that mission has to come from him now, because right. he's used to the mission parameters coming from the handlers, right? The yeah. minders, but they're not around anymore. So all he knows is the mission. Well, the mission is the most important thing. Yeah. He says that repeatedly throughout this story. And sneak peek, eventually Clint becomes the mission. So Clint becomes the most important thing. And now oh. we can all say, aw. Oh, good God. Oh, geez. <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> I can't wait for that. I cannot wait. But no, that makes so much sense because he just, it's like he doesn't know how to operate without a mission and mission parameters. And so he makes them up as he goes. But What I will say that the other thing that I love about your Bucky is that he is still operating from some sense of morality and justice. Very much. He is only going after bad people, people who have hurt him. He does not murder children, right? Right. And there are times when he will go out of his way even to kill someone who has not wronged him personally but who was about to wrong somebody else. I think there was a scene in there where a man was about to assault a a woman uh, Uh near a bar and Bucky sees what's happening and he steps in and he saves this woman, you know? So he does have this innate sense of morality and justice. It's just a little warped right now, (laughs) you know? (laughs) Definitely more than a little warped. Yeah, yeah. But I also appreciated the bits of humanity that you gave him because 
Some of my favorite parts have been seeing Bucky's reaction to food in this story <laughs> and also seeing Bucky's reaction to animals and living creatures. He seems to have this really sweet affinity to living things. And so there's this one part in the story where he's kind of living, I don't know if it's under a bridge or in a cave or somewhere, but there's bugs there, right? And rats. And, you know, <laughs> if I was living in those conditions, I'd be like, oh, my God, that's so gross. But Bucky's like, oh, creatures, like, let me feed you. Let me take care of you. You guys are important. I'll make sure that you guys don't get killed. I mean, like crazy stuff like that. And it just, it was so humanizing, right? To watch him be so soft with these creatures. He deemed them important enough to, to keep them alive. You know? Right. To him, they aren't pests. They're innocent creatures. They're the little creatures. No, my Bucky's across the board, no matter what I'm writing, are always very, very fond of animals. So this one, of course, had to be fond of animals, but especially because this one doesn't see himself as a person, doesn't see himself as any more worthy or less worthy than these little animals, that these little creatures and so he doesn't see a, you know, a rat or a cockroach or a mosquito and think, oh, pest. He sees another living creature, one that's too little. So if they don't have to earn a reward, but they should still get a reward, then, well, he ought to bring them rewards. And he won't take it away again. He gives his rewards freely. He collects extra food to bring home to them, simply so that they don't have to go scrounging around looking for their own. And so he, in a way, he really identifies with these little creatures, and they're, they're his little family. He does. And there were times when he would bring them food and not let himself eat. Yeah. You know, because he didn't earn it, but they don't have to earn it. So he didn't want them to go hungry. And that just broke me, like, in all the best ways. <laughs> I mean, that is the best compliment in the world. But like, oh, my God, that just broke me. But yeah, I digress. Anyway, the other thing that I wanted to say is also that I have greatly enjoyed the parts where you are having Bucky describe the foods that he finds <laughs> and he's eating. It's been very fun for me trying to figure out what he's talking about, what he's describing, because I, I know before the show we talked about how he doesn't always have the language to describe the food that he's eating or the food that he found in a garbage can or whatever but he's still doing his best to describe it. And so at one point he refers to pizza as, um, what was it, triangle bread? <laughs> yes, triangle bread. Because it's it comes in a triangle. It, he doesn't get a full pizza that first time. He just gets leftovers. So he just sees a bunch of triangle slices in a box. If he saw the full pizza, it might be circle bread. But he sees little triangles. So it's triangle bread with assorted random things on top of it. And each piece of triangle bread that he ends up finding, or each batch of it, has something else on top. The only thing that's really consistent is the shape and the fact that it's definitely a bread of some kind. Definitely a bread. A chewy kind of bread. It's different from all the other bread, and he loves it dearly. It's one of his favorite foods. He has a thing for Chinese food, though. When he gets to the back of the dumpster with the Chinese food, he goes crazy over it. It's great. Oh, oh, well, and just that mental image of him like digging through the trash, looking for food to eat just breaks my heart. But 
the way that you have so creatively dug into those words to really try to describe these foods for us the way Bucky would, kind of having his guessing. I will admit that I am not the sharpest crayon in the crayon box. <laughs> so I often have to go into the comments section and look at the comments from much smarter people to finally figure out what food Bucky was referring to. But <laughs> it's still been so much fun. I have loved it. Now, one of the other things to say, I think, about this fic is that it is very graphic when you are describing the way that he kills his victims. Very much, yes. You absolutely don't shy away from that, which I love. I am fascinated by it. There's a beauty to it in just the horror of it. So I do feel like this fic falls into that horror genre a little bit. And I was wondering what your thoughts were on that. So first off, that is hilarious to me and interesting to me because I never really assigned it a genre other than dark or revenge tour. But I can definitely see some horror vibes. I mean, our murder muffin is definitely compared to a slasher from a horror flick. Clint goes into detail about the way the music would be a high-pitched violin screech at this point. And he does kind of fit the bill like that. But it's hilarious to me because I am too terrified to watch horror movies. I avoid them at all costs because it'll keep me up for days. No way. <laughs> yes, way, way. My brain comes up with enough disturbing crap that if it doesn't need help. And so if I got help, I don't think I'd ever sleep again. The trope where you are looking into a mirror or like a medicine cabinet or something, you open it. And then when you shut the thing again in the mirror on the medicine cabinet, now there's something behind you. If I saw that on screen, I would sleep with the light on for like a week. <laughs> I kid you not. I'm terrified of mirrors at dark. That comes from the last time I saw horror in any way, shape, or form. It was this show, I think it was called Fact or Fiction, and it would tell you three stories, and then it would say one of them is true. Or only one of these stories is true, and you had to guess which one. Was that the one hosted by Jonathan Frakes? I could not tell you. I'm terrible with names. I know what show you're talking about, though. That was good. <laughs> yeah, and I saw part of one episode. Only part. And it was this thing where this woman was killed by this man in a house, and later on, the house is bought by a family, and the wife in the family... She keeps seeing this weird blue lady in the mirror, and her husband can't see it. And so she's like, but it's, it, she's there. She's there in the mirror out of the corner of my eye. I keep seeing her. And her husband's response is, well, we'll just, you know, put a blanket over the mirror. And so years go by, and the blanket's still over the mirror. And one stormy night, the wife is home alone, and somebody breaks in. And as she is struggling with the man who's trying to like abduct her or worse, the blanket gets pulled off the mirror and the blue lady in the mirror strangles the man through the mirror because she's been killed like this in this house and she won't allow it to happen to another. And that was like this formative terror thing for me. And since that moment, I have not been able to like pass by a mirror at night. I can't do it because the blue lady might be there and she might be after me, even though she'd only protect me from a murderer, but she's there in the mirror. She could get me. 
like if I move, but the mirror is still, or if I don't move and the mirror moves, I just, I can't handle <laughs> oh it. I can't do it. <laughs> and so when Clint is sitting there on the edge of that building looking for the killer, he's like, okay, this is the moment where the killer is probably climbing up the roof, or I think he's climbing up. And so I turn and I look, but it turns out he's not there. He's right behind me. And as soon as I turn around, suddenly he's there. That whole genre of that scare tactic for horror fix and horror flicks, I cannot with that. I can't do it. I'm just (laughs) terrified. That is so interesting to me. It's so fascinating because this really does come off as a horror genre fic just because it's so graphic the way that you describe because you you absolutely in detail describe the moments of death you know, yes. for each of Bucky's victims and he's just having a great <laughs> time and he's enjoying it. And like you said, he uses knives, so it's not like he shoots them in the head and then leaves. I mean, this is like art that he's doing right now. And then he takes the blood and he draws his little star, you know, with yeah. the blood. And it's like, wow. <laughs> you well, know? The, the things that have been done to him are horrifying. And so yeah. maybe they need to be explored in a horror setting, complete with the DC slasher. And eventually he's called the Red Star Killer. But he's become in some ways what was done to him. He's just pointed at those he deems as evil. And so, you know, in fact, in the beginning, I think in chapter two, even Tony compares them to the Saw franchise and he's talking about Jigsaw's, you know, vintage murder puppet. And you know, actually funny thing, but Jigsaw becomes his preferred name eventually, in part because he's sort of forming his identity, like collecting hundreds of puzzle pieces and putting them together. And in part because he takes his victims apart like pieces of a puzzle. And when he eventually learns about the Saw franchise, he's very pleased and loves that franchise, I'm sure. I, of course, have never seen it, but I know that our beloved Murder Muffin would love that series. Absolutely. It's just, it's so fascinating. And I love it so much because it's like this anti-hero, you know, Mm -hmm. slasher, you know, film (laughs) vibe that you get. And I'm with you. I don't watch a lot of slasher films. I don't watch a lot of horror. Sometimes the haunted stuff I'm okay with. But uh, I just was so fascinated by the, there was almost this visceral beauty to it. Well, he does very artistically take his victims apart. And I've tried to sort of use poetic language when he does that. So as he's, you know, calling himself an inky shadow in the dark and an avenging angel sweeping past everything and snuffing people out. And he gets very poetic when he's describing these things. And I try to be poetic along with him. But, you know, he has a mind of his own. His point of view chapters are crazy to write. They're just super crazy. And that actually kind of leads into my next question for you about point of views. Because you do have so many point of views that exist here. Obviously, we have the point of views that are from Bucky. But then you also have point of views from a lot of the other MCU characters, the Avengers and all of that. So I was wondering what point of view is your favorite to write and which point of view is most challenging for you? Okay, so the answer is the same point of view, (laughs) to be honest. The absolute hands down favorite point of view for me to write is Bucky's point of view. He just sees the world so differently from anyone else. He's got these murder goggles on, as one commenter has described them, where 
the everyday ordinary things are parsed in terms of torture or killing. And he gets to describe food in these ways as well. So it's not a box of crackers. It's these crackers in their cardboard prison. So he's, he's thinking of things differently. And he's undergoing the most change of all of these other characters. So, you know, when he dissociates or has memories of his trash party days, it seems like every time he comes up with something worse that he'll describe. And so his point of view is just filled with this stuff. And it keeps getting darker and darker. And there's more and more stuff going on when it comes to his point of view and the Hydra trash party that he's been subjected to. And really, his point of view, well, first off, it wasn't supposed to be there. And second off, it helps me get one of the main themes across, which is that identity and self concept. It's like the question we have to ask ourselves, who am I? You know, we don't all get our brains turned into scrambled egg, obviously, and we can remember a lot better than he can. But we have to decide at some point, like, who are we? And that identity can change with time and experience, and it's fine for that to change, and it's fine for it to stay the same. But, you know, we have to find ourselves somehow, and Bucky in these chapters and his points of view is slowly, gradually finding himself. And, you know, he's just an amazing character to write because of all of these external points of view that he gets, because he is his own external point of view. He's dissociated to the point where, you know, his point of view is just, it's crazy. It's absolutely crazy. And that is so, so wonderful and fun to write and to explore. And the fact that they, of course, weren't supposed to be there in the first place, that just, it makes it all the more fun. But to be honest, he's also one of the most challenging to write because you have to sort of allow yourself, or I have to allow myself, rather, to get into his headspace. And it's a crazy, awful place in there, filled with all sorts of things. And you just, you got to do it. So I have a follow-up question for you Mm -hmm. on that, especially with this one, because his point of view is so crazy. Does getting into that headspace, does that ever affect you in real life? Well, I've never decided to kill someone messily. Well, no, no. (laughs) (laughs) But spending so much time in Bucky's head, I guess, does that ever bleed out into like other parts of your life? I would say that it does a little bit. I come up with the crazy descriptions of things from being in his headspace. I will be eating food and I'll think about it in terms of what would he describe this as? What would he think about this food or that food? Would he like peanut butter, for instance? I'd know he would not like peanut butter because it would cement his mouth shut and he wouldn't like that at all. It would be a kind of constricting, trapping feeling for him. And I'd never have come up with that if I hadn't been writing in his point of view before eating a peanut butter sandwich. So it does carry over somewhat, but at the same time, I can leave it behind when I need to. It doesn't follow me around all day. What follows me around all day is writing Hydra point of view because they're very disturbed and it's a challenge to get into their characters. I mean, for Bucky, it's a pleasant challenge and I can build up 
you know, from prior point of view chapters to refresh the voice if I need to. But for someone like Rumlo, that's just disturbing sometimes. He has vivid fantasies about what he'd like to do to Bucky, and he's crass explaining them, and I just, I feel like I need a bath after writing any of them. I can absolutely imagine, because you do the Hydra point of view so well, right? Well, thank you. But that means that you have to get really into that headspace with them, just like you would with Bucky. And I imagine that that may be more disturbing. Yeah, for sure. But one of the easiest points of view to write is civilian point of view. Those are a lot of fun and super easy because they're so short. I just have to, you know, compile enough to make them their own unique individual. And they're approaching this the whole situation from a very outsider point of view. And they only know what the news is showing them. Or in Brandon's case, of course, they know that the Terminator has come for them and they need to farm potatoes for the rest of their life. But, you know, the civilian point of view is just a lot of fun. Jenna, in particular, is the most fun, I'd say, with her car wash fairy descriptors and all of that. Oh, she was one of my favorite civilian point of views in the whole story so far, just because She's sitting there in her car and she cannot figure out if she should be afraid or just enthralled by what she's saying, you know? (laughs) It was so great. Well, she's actually kind of a cameo, to be honest. I had written her, I think her original name was Cynthia, and I was sort of giving it to Glittercake to say, hey, does this sound reasonable, etc. Is this too quote unquote funny to have a, you know, be a closure for a chapter that's just crazy with killing? And I had named her son Liam. And apparently Liam is a character in Teen Wolf, I think. And the mother in that series, the fandom just sort of came up with her and invented her wholesale and named her Jenna. And She has a truck and she's, I forget what her job was exactly, but I made her a baker, but she's got clients and she was like, you know, you're talking about werewolves here. You've got Liam here. I keep thinking of her as Jenna and I was like, well, why don't I name her Jenna? And she's going to be a cameo. She's a Teen Wolf Fanon cameo. So yeah, she's a lot of fun. Oh, I love that. Do you know if she'll be making any more appearances in the story? She definitely makes repeat appearances in the story, yes. Oh, good. In fact, her husband is the David that shows up. Oh, maybe it's not actually out there yet. But when David shows up, he's a Teen Wolf character as well. So she's married to David. Oh, well, we look forward to that for sure. Because, (laughs) yeah, your cameos are just, even though they're so short, They're so interesting, and they really help kind of flow the story along, and I've just enjoyed them immensely. Now, I was also wondering, I'm sure that you must have a favorite scene from the story so far or a favorite line. What could you share with us about that as far as your favorite line or scene goes? It's like picking your favorite child in a lot of ways. (laughs) Right. (laughs) (laughs) But I think I can narrow it down. Oh, Oh, it's hard. I can narrow it down, I think, to the scene where he's dispatching the mechanic as my favorite scene, because we get to see how much he struggles with communicating his thoughts, with him trying to 
finds the sounds that make the letters and then the letters that turn into the words that people understand and the words that people speak when they open their mouths. I've based some of his communication difficulties on expressive aphasia. So he can listen to things, he can pick up what's being said, but a specific area of his brain was damaged such that he can't communicate what he's feeling or thinking very effectively. So even if he wasn't a mute, he still wouldn't be able to comment on his situation very effectively. So it's very much a difficulty for him to communicate what's going on in his mind. And in addition to that, in that scene, we get to see what happens when he gets too close to the mechanic. He's terrified of being that close to his victim because being close always meant being pushed into or being assaulted in some other way. So even with all the power in his court, he's desperately terrified of being too close to the mechanic. And so we get to see you know, all of these judgments that he makes about this guy's hobbies and his clothes. We get to see his malicious little note about that stomach has got to go. Which direction will it go in, up or down? We get to see just so much of him in that one clip. And we get to see or hear some of the Hydra Trash Party goings-on that he's remembering from this mechanic and the transport driver who teamed up on him. So I would say that's probably one of my favorites because I love the mechanic sobbing at the end of it and Bucky making his little pincher motion like, haha, I'm going to grab something out of you. Which direction should I go? Yeah, I, I think that would be one of my favorites with the follow-up of Clint and Natasha investigating the murder scene. Oh, yeah. When they go and investigate the murder scenes afterwards, it is so interesting to get their reactions on that because I would imagine that they just must be like nothing they've ever seen before in their whole entire life. So yeah. he gets creative. He gets yeah. Oh, very he does. Creative. He does. And the way you describe it, it just sounds so grisly. I can smell it. You know, <laughs> like you're so good at describing it that I can smell it, you know, and that's like, whoa, but I love it. <laughs> as disturbing as it is, like, I love it. And I love that that's your favorite scene, too, because I felt like that scene was so incredibly intense. Well, it was meant to be intense. It was one of the first scenes I wrote. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I wrote his little love note and a bit of the scene in front of it, and I sent it off to my emergency beta glitter cake, and she was like, I love it! You must include this whole thing. So I definitely expanded on it. That always fascinates me when I learn which scenes get written first in a fic, because I'm such an analytical person that like my brain always wants to go from the beginning to the end, yeah. from up to down, right? <laughs> and I am just fascinated by how people can write all of these different scenes out of order and then piece them together, kind of like a film like you do with the, with the yeah. movie. So I am wondering about the development and the writing process for this particular project. What does that look like for you? Well, this is the first time that a fic has sprung to life as a complete idea with beginning, end, inner bits, etc. And I had that outline. And of course, that outline I thought would probably become about 10 chapters. Because, you know, it was just, you know, shaped up to be 10 chapters. We can do 10 chapters. And I'd recently written 
a 15-chapter story that was meant to be seven chapters that was originally, originally meant to be three chapters. And so I figured there'd be some chapter creep. So I thought, okay, 10 chapters, let's call it 20 chapters. We'll be good with 20. And we're on, what, 50 chapters now? So clearly something went wrong in the outlining phase. And by wrong, I mean delightfully right. And it took over a life of its own. It just became something. I started moving stuff from the sequels into the original series fic, because this is going to be a series. I just haven't tagged it as a series yet. But, you know, what happened ultimately is that I had this idea, and it was going to be focused on the Avengers. And at the end of each chapter, there'd be like a little interlude that would tell like maybe three or four paragraphs from the the asset point of view, so that the readers knew what Bucky was getting up to while the Avengers were tracking him down. Well, as you know, there are now interlude chapters every third chapter. So I thought I was done writing interlude stuff well before I started posting anything, and I was so wrong, so, so wrong. The next chapter I ended up writing after the mechanics chapter was Bucky's response to having the bugs placed on him by Natasha. So I definitely wrote it out of order, but I found myself writing to get to that scene, and I included several more interlude chapters, and then I decided, you know what, I've got these interlude chapters, I want to have them be full chapters, so I'm going to do two chapters of named point-of-view character, and then a third chapter is going to be a nameless interlude, because he doesn't have a name. He's not a person who gets a name. And so I'm going to do one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three. It'll be like a little waltz. It'll be great. And I'm so glad I chose to do that, because the interludes are that fun to write, of course, and they tend to be popular. I mean, go figure. People like reading the bloody, gory stuff a lot. But the chapter creep issue definitely started out with the interludes becoming full chapters. And because of that, the need for two point-of-view chapters. And then because I'm so introspective in the writing, the chapters just sort of got longer, the story kind of slowed down, and so I ended up just writing a whole bunch of very self-indulgent point-of-view chapters, and it just kept expanding. I'm a sucker for multiple point-of-view. I love outsider point of view. The interlude passages I had written were chilling. They were fun to write. So yeah, it just, I guessed wrong on how many chapters it was going to be. And I guessed wrong on when Sam Wilson was going to join the team. In the outline, he doesn't show up. In the outline, he was purely sequel material. And he's one of those sequel material bits that I decided to include because I couldn't not include Sam Wilson. He's just a beautiful character, and I love him dearly. And he ends up being the first point-of-view character, in fact, in the prologue, instead of not showing up until the sequel. And so I you know, sort of slowly built him in as a civilian at first, and then he, you know, spoiler alert, he joins the team and is a very valid and valued member of that team. But, you know, he wasn't supposed to be there. The Triskelion bits weren't supposed to be there. Strike isn't supposed to be as big an obstacle to the Avengers. Zola's not supposed to show up. Zealous isn't supposed to show up. 
but they all just demanded to be there. And so I ended up writing them in. It expanded even more. Various characters decided they needed to have points of view. They needed to be able to express themselves. And yes, I did write it mostly out of order because I tried to write all the interlude chapters in one go, thinking, I've got the voice. I might as well try to get as much as I can out on the page using the voice before it goes away. But I was really quite wrong about how many interludes there'd need to be. So I've ended up rewriting some things and adding a whole bunch more of the interludes. One thing that didn't change is the amount of Hydra Trash Party you get. I made the call really early on that it was always going to be past tense because I just, as an admission, I don't generally read Hydra Trash Party. It makes me uncomfortable sometimes to read it. And I wanted them to be flashbacks or remembered events or fantasies by odious creeps. But so no matter who apprehended Bucky or how the story was changed, I was always going to have that be in the past tense. And it's been nice to be able to reassure readers of that as various things happen. But I just, I can't put him back there. I can't send him back. I just can't do it. Well, and I don't blame you. And I I really like that you've done that because we don't actually need to see what happened to deal with the aftermath along with Bucky as he's going along this journey. And for me, that's way more intense and satisfying and emotional you know, dealing with that aftermath with him, as opposed to actually like going through it in real time and, you know, getting real descriptive and all of, of that stuff. <laughs> so just the fact that it's something that happened in the past that he's still processing and still dealing with and working through is just so emotionally intense, like incredible. Yeah. As for the current writing process, though, because it's still a process, I'm about 12 chapters ahead of posting. And for a while, I was about 25 chapters ahead. So I was writing Triskelion stuff while people were still not even sure that Triskelion was going to be a thing. And so that allows me to take breaks and rest. For instance, I haven't actively written on the story this summer because some personal issues came up, but it allows me also to add foreshadowing elements. So if what I'm currently writing is looking good and I'm liking it, but then I find out, oh, I want to add this thing, I can go back and added just a little foreshadowing for it in a couple of chapters ahead of time. And then it looks like I planned it all along, which is great. I love when it looks like I planned it all along. <laughs> That's so clever, though. I love that. Well, I, I do live for foreshadowing. I love to foreshadow things. And if I can find a way to kind of add it in there, I definitely will. And, you know, commenters will sometimes ask for certain things. Like they really want to see so-and-so's reaction or they really want to see a crime scene that I hadn't planned on depicting. Usually I can find a way to add that in. And because I'm so many chapters ahead of time, I can be like, yeah, we can show that. Somebody really wanted to see the aftermath or the end of the battle that takes place in chapter 18. And I was like, you know what? I can fit that in. But it had to take several chapters later for it to get a place. But I could do that because I was so many chapters ahead of time. So it's been really fun. And I mean, again, I'm 12 chapters ahead. The thing that's missing on those chapters is the tagline. Because I made the terrible mistake at the beginning of this thing. And I decided that it wouldn't just be chapter one. And that's the title of the chapter. It had to have a point of view character or a blank if it's our, our murder muffin. 
And then it has to have a tagline from a song or a poem or something. And since I started out with lots of good ideas for these, it seemed like a pretty good idea at the time. Of course, now I have to listen to loads of music to find a good lyric somehow for all of the chapters. And I tell you, sometimes it's a stretch. Sometimes I'm like, I don't know, but this one line from this one song sounds good and I'm going for it because I'm tired of listening to music for this chapter. I just need to post it. (laughs) Oh, but that's so cool that you put some thought and effort into that, though. I've really enjoyed the titles of the chapters. Well, I'm glad. And if you listen to the songs, some of them are really, really applicable, like, for instance, The Matador, where I got the whole idea. And others of them are just not at all applicable. It's like, here's the one line from the song that works. Go for it. And, you know, for the Debenham scene, I was like, well, I don't really have a song for this. But Mary Mary, quite contrary, how does your garden grow? It works well. We'll throw that in there. I think so, too. I think so, too. That's so cool. I think it just adds another element of fun and surprise to the whole experience of enjoying your fic and reading your story. You've had some wonderful feedback here. Oh, my God, yes. I have greatly enjoyed reading through the comments section and getting to see what everybody else has to say about it. What has that been like to have so much interaction and response to this project? It has been amazing. Just absolutely 100% amazing. I never once expected this to be a popular story because the Hydra Trash Party is past tense and a lot of people want to see it on the page. Strike one. The Bucky character isn't very Bucky-like. Strike two. He's not going to recover fully. In fact, he's even going to resist being called Bucky. An element of this Bucky that readers won't pick up on unless they read my obsessively lengthy comment replies is that even when he's finally with the rest of the team, he's going to resist being called Bucky. He's not in love with Barnes or James either. They're, they all represent this other different person they're trying to force him to be. And he's so afraid of being forced to start over again with the, you know, the chair with the white electric fire. He's terrified of it. And being turned into Steve's Bucky, it's not as violent a thing as being wiped, but to him, it seems very much to be the same. And so all of what he is and all of who he is that he's created for himself, it's in danger as far as he's concerned, and it needs to be protected from being the Bucky. So, I mean, we don't have the kind of recovery fic here that a lot of people are looking for. So that's strike whatever we're on. And so... When you add all of those things up, I thought this was going to be a little niche thing, maybe maybe 10 or, or 11 comments for any given chapter, and yet it has just exploded, and it keeps exploding. And there are, as of the last time I was brave enough to look, there were over 400 people subscribed to this fic. That's terrifying to me. It's absolutely terrifying, because that's so much to live up to. I've always wondered about that. You know, writers get so excited when they do get subscribers, but then there comes a certain point where I feel like it would feel like a lot of pressure, right? Even though it's very cool. Oh, it's very cool. And there's so much pressure. And readers seem to come and go in cycles. So you'll get somebody who's really invested in it at first, and then maybe they get busy with life when they'll come back here and there. New readers will show up and sometimes they'll tell me something like, I just found this fic last night and I read the whole thing. And I'm like, 
Do you realize how long this is? That's hella impressive. And they don't seem to think there's anything amiss by that. And I'm like, if this was a book, you'd have read like three Harry Potter books by now. Like overnight. <laughs> That's so true, right? There's <laughs> so much content. That's how I am, though. I tend to stumble onto cool things after they've been around for a while. Yeah. And uh, and so that's definitely been me more than once, where I'll read a whole 50 chapter something, you know, in the course of one night and then just be like, oh, I can't believe it. That was so amazing. That was so amazing. <laughs> well, you know, I'll have the readers who show up, quote unquote, late to the party, and they'll read it all in one go. And I'll be just amazed that they did that in the first place. And, and also that they thought it was worth being up at 5 a.m., you know, when you're not just waking up at 5 for an early morning. And then they're also the ones who, they show up and they just start commenting on every single chapter as they go through it. And my heart just goes pitter-patter every time I see one of their comments. I'm just like, oh my god, they're back. Wow, look at that. And it's like, it's like I get to read and refresh my memory of the story along with them. And I get to relive the excitement of each chapter as they go along through it, and they get to say, oh my god, I can't believe that happened, or no, put the jump drive down, it's a trap, or, you know, whatever. And and I'm just sitting there going, gleefully grinning, ear to ear, so hard my face hurts. I'm just like, I love this so much. Because I just, I can't get over how much response this thing has gotten and so much fun to just reply to these comments and have these huge conversations with people. I mean, there are readers who just deeply analyze the characters and have lengthy back and forth with me in the comments about psychology and you know, all of the different things that are wrong with our murder muffin. And, you know, they'll ask questions about things and I'll answer in this you know, horribly novella-length response because I can't stop talking. And we've had discussions of the logic and rationale behind Hydra Trash Party. We've had Winter Soldier murder goggles, Bucky's psychological problems now and into the future, the nature of happy endings, the ethics of whether Bucky continues to fight or retires from violence, found family, just all sorts of things. And I love having those exchanges. I love that the comments are just like so invested in it. Sometimes people will be invested and they'll try to guess what's happening next. And it's fun because I'm like 12 chapters ahead of this point And I'll be like, hmm, no, you're really quite wrong, but please keep guessing because it's amazing that you're so invested in this. And sometimes they get it right. And I'm like, yes, my foreshadowing has worked. This is brilliant. <laughs> Because I don't like that bait-and-switch thing of, oh, no, the readers have figured it out. I need to make a plot twist. To me, if the readers have figured it out, you're doing something right. And they're able to take what you're giving them and just make it into, yep, yep, I can see how this happens, and then this happens, and then logically this is the next step. And I think where readers get it wrong is when they're expecting something that's more like and I don't mean this badly, but the conventional Bucky recovery fic. And this one is just not that, because nobody's getting fixed. Nobody's spontaneously remembering something from the war. Nobody's, you know, suddenly recalling something from before the war. Nobody's doing that. So, you know, we've got a lot of very atypical things going on, and I think readers can sometimes expect a more conventional 
ending or more plot progression. But, you know, the ones who are like, oh, I wonder if this is going to happen. Sometimes I'm like, yes, that's going to happen. You guessed it. Hurrah. And other times I'm like, no, but it could, couldn't it? Hmm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I wonder if that is what so many people find so compelling about it. Let them be broken. That speaks to so many of us. Let them be broken. Yeah. And beautiful. let them stay broken. Like, that's okay. You know, and I, I loved how you said that so many of us in our own real lives have experiences like that where we'll never be the same. And it's okay. And I love that. I'm so glad that you've had such a great experience with the interactions with this story. I think that's always so special when that happens and, and so fulfilling and just it just makes the whole thing worth it. So I, I love that. And I'm so glad. I was also wondering, since I'm sure that you've learned a lot with this project and with prior projects, and especially, you know, also with the real life work that you do with editing, you must have a lot of good experience now with writing. And <laughs> if you had to give some advice to less experienced fan fiction writers out there, what would you say? Honestly, I would say don't be afraid to post something. It doesn't matter how niche the subject matter is. There's somebody out there who's desperate to read it. And they might take a while finding you. It might be that it takes months or longer for them to look up your fic and be like, aha, this is the thing I never knew I wanted. But there's somebody out there, no matter how rare the pairing, how cracky the AU, there's somebody who wants to read that. And even if the only person who wants to read that at this moment is you, go ahead and write it for you. Go ahead and write it down. It doesn't have to be brilliant. It doesn't have to be the best thing you've ever written. It can be a beginning piece. It can be a draft one that you slap in there and call it good. It can be something that you later rewrite and just call it the second version and post it next to the first version and people can see improvement. Just post it. Just put it out there and let the world find it. Let the world read it. And don't be afraid of it or embarrassed of it or ashamed of it. I mean, just do it. And I know that it sounds condescending coming from someone with a story like all the hits and stuff, but it really is true what they say that it's not about the stats. The stats will never satisfy you. They never will. You'll always want more of whatever. You'll always be dissatisfied with your work's reception. You'll always have a story that's popular and yay, but it's not popular enough. And it can be really scary sometimes to look at your stats and find that there's 400 people subscribed to it. That's a lot of unnecessary pressure. And I just don't do that to yourself. Don't look at your hits. Don't look at your kudos. I mean, look at your comments, obviously, but not in a sense of numbers. Just read your comments and reply to them if you possibly can. That's another thing right there. Comments are nice. They really are. They can make your whole day. But... What's even better is engaging with those comments and striking up conversations with readers, getting to know their tastes, getting to know their comment styles, getting to have some camaraderie with your readers. I'd encourage any writer to just respond to their comments if they can bring themselves to do it. The whole process for me is a fuller and more rewarding one when you can get to have these little discussions about the story and canon and whatever in your comment section. I remember when Texas had the big freeze and we were all without power and electricity and water and all sorts of stuff and I vanished for a while 
And it was nice because I had readers who were worried about me. And I was worried about some of my readers who hadn't commented. And we, we talked about the freeze. We talked about Texas. I found out that a lot of my readers are from Texas, same as me. And so, I mean, yeah, when I had food poisoning and disappeared for a while, everybody was like, where were you? And I said, I had food poisoning. Oh, let me tell you about the time I had food poisoning. And it's just the comment section is amazing and the community that you can build there is amazing and the stats don't matter don't worry about artificially inflating your stats by having your comments be double what they are because of your replies i don't think people really look at those i mean i could be wrong but i think they're looking at the story more than anything and i would say even if they look at them and say oh that's too many comments i bet the author is artificially inflating the comments they're still going to read the story and they might add a comment and you might reply to them and you might start a great conversation and you might make a fandom friend. Glitter Cake was my very first commenter in the MCU fandom and she and I are great friends right now. So like respond to those readers, have those conversations. That is an amazing response. I love that so much because what I hear you saying is that sometimes you have to get over that fear of someone seeing you or seeing your work. Mm -hmm. And sometimes you just have to post that anyway, because you never know what's going to happen when you put yourself out there, right? Right. You open yourself up to all of these positive engagements and interactions, and you absolutely can forge real life friendships with people because there's a person behind every hit that you get, every stat that you get, every comment that you get. When you start engaging with the people behind the stats, that's when the magic happens. I love that. Well, the community that you build is part of fandom. It's part of everything. And it, I think, is one of the most rewarding elements of the entire thing. It's just, it's all about community for me. I would agree with that 100%. Community and connection are the most important thing. And when you have that, you can get through anything. I Agreed. promise. <laughs> Now, last question of the day. I save a little bit of time at the end for some shout outs of other writers if you're inclined to do that. Do you follow any other fan fiction authors that you'd like to mention here? I follow way too many other fan fiction authors to even start naming them. So I guess instead I'll focus on a couple of specific stories that impacted me, maybe? Sure. So, first off, the very first story I can remember reading in the fandom, it sang to me. It's just, I've always had a very introspective writing style, and I hardly ever see it anywhere to the same degree. And this story, this whole series, and all of the accompanying series that go with it, it's even more introspective than my own style. It was just an absolute delight the way every character has their own life going on, and they deeply dive into it. The OCs are delightful. I love this whole series. It's the Your Blue-Eyed Boys by Feather or Lala Yefa, and it's just gorgeous. It's It seemed at the time like it was way longer than it really is because it's just so beautiful and it lasts so long and it lingers with you after you read it. It's one of the best things out there that I've ever read. It's amazing stuff. I love that story. Another one is This You Protect. That's by Owlet. And it's probably not my second story, but it's definitely one of the earlier ones in my reading adventures in the MCU. 
And again, the OCs are delightful. They're just wonderful. The way Bucky discovers coffee, the way the coffee is emphasized, there's the real-life seasonal shifts, the way Steve kind of accepts that Bucky is somewhere stalking him. Just everything about the story is wonderful. And the other stories in the series, the sequel, I just, I love it. I love it, love it, love it. We get to see a recovery that's slower. Well, and both of them have that slower recovery, which I'm here for that. I don't really care for the ones where suddenly something clicks and it's all okay. I like that where they have to really struggle for their recovery. And it it happens slowly enough that the characters almost don't know what's happening. And then, okay, so this one is like totally different from the above two. Completely different. But I reread it on occasion, and every time I reread it, I still cry at the exact same place all the time. Sold my soul to a three-piece. It's by Perpetually Now, and Brock Rumlow is a good guy. And if there were ever the second or third part to this series, I would roll over and die happy. It's a masterpiece, but it's, oh God, how do you even explain this story? Brock goes into Hydra and he gets a glimpse of the Winter Soldier. He sees that the soldier's not being treated very well, insert Hydra trash party. And he's like, you know what? I'm going to be the handler who treats him well, because this is a weapon that deserves to be treated well. And then he decides that this is not just a weapon. This is like this great person. And, you know, he rescues him. He rescues Steve Rogers. The Triskelion stuff happens. They go into hiding. It's just, it's beautiful. And it's one of those stories where you get to see the good days. Because, of course, you know, Bucky is still in captivity. Bucky is still being treated like a weapon, etc., etc., but it's like the good days of that, not the bad days of that. Or rather, you start out with the bad days and then you see the good days. And that's before there's any recovery at all. And so the recovery process itself, I mean, that's in the second or third part that aren't written, sadly. I mean, if I could go to Perpetually Now and beg them on my knees to write them, I would. But even just the part one, it's beautiful. Just beautiful. Oh, that's perfect. Thank you so much for those. We'll make sure that the links for those stories do end up in the show notes for those who want to check those out. That's perfect. Those are all the questions that I had for today. Flamingo Queen, thank you so much for being here. Do you have any last words for us? I just want to thank you again for letting me ramble because I love to talk. I love to write lengthy rambly comments. I was shocked, in fact, that I even got asked to do this podcast. And I just, this has been really fun. Thank you so much. It was my pleasure. Absolutely. I love the story and getting to know you today was so much fun. Thank you for all of your insightful comments today. Check out her stories on AO3, folks. Give her some love. You can find the Fanfic Maverick online at fanficmaverickpodcast.com, on Tumblr at fanficmaverickpodcast on Instagram at fanficmaverick, and I can always be reached at fanficmaverick at gmail.com. Thank you all so much for listening. Don't forget to subscribe, and I will see you next episode. In the meantime, keep on rolling.